Introducing Minor Wisdom Quintet. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 5, probably one of the more meaty episodes, definitely the most meaty episode we've had so far, but one of the more meaty episodes that we'll ever have. I try to keep this to about a 35 minute show, but every once in a while we're going to get a little longer, and that's okay. This week we have Dr. Jerry Ivins, he was kind enough to sit down with me. Jay Thomas is in the room, so you'll hear him every once in a while, that guy just can't get enough of this podcast But we sit down and we discuss quite a bit about theater and education, which is what this podcast is designed to do. Then after that, I discuss some more stuff regarding UIL and contests with Mandy Tapia. And then you'll hear some kids uh, responding to a great question, which we'll get to later. This week in theater uh, was a big week. We had a Sam French bookstore in Los Angeles closed down. I think that's significant, but however, it's not its not necessarily surprising. We do have that, uh, what's that website called? Uh, Amazon, where we get a lot of stuff. We also had the creator of Gaff Tape pass away at 92 years old, and uh, that was really unfortunate, although he lived a great life. He also created maybe one of the top inventions or contributions, that is, to theater over the last 50 years Maybe you could argue the Source 4 is a big deal, but we had light before that. We didn't have tape other than duct tape before that. I'm sure somebody out there is going to tell me what kind of tape we had before that. We also, uh, in Texas news, there was a Senate committee that passed through a bill that's going to potentially give us a $5,000 raise for all Texas teachers. However, it would come with some cuts, and we don't know where those cuts would come from, but it would be detrimental in maybe professional world, but not necessarily in your personal pocketbook. Is that still a thing, a pocketbook? So hit me up, Mr. Blake Miner on Twitter, blake.miner at gmail.com, or you can go to Facebook and search Miner Wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, this week's Groaner Joke of the Week. This week's Groner Joke of the Week is, what is a math teacher's favorite sum? Summer. First of all, thank you. You bet. Um, so, h- history of Doc Ivins. Um, how long have you been here at St. Jack? Uh, this is my 25th year, I believe. Okay. And did you start in the position you are currently in, like head of, head of the... No, for one year uh, I was brought in as halftime uh, speech and halftime theater. Uh, okay. They didn't really have enough classes uh, for a full-time position. And a colleague of mine that uh, we went uh, and got our uh, master's degrees together, his name was Terry Ogden, and uh, Terry was, uh, was brilliant and, and still is brilliant. And uh, he had uh, been diagnosed with, uh, with Parkinson's and he was having a lot of difficulty speaking and getting around. And so they, they really created the position for someone to come in and, and assist him. And after I was here for a year, uh, it, it just got way too much for him. And, uh, 
and he stepped down um, and asked if I would take over and, and did so and I think he lasted maybe half a year yeah. after that and then um, he went off and, and now he has his uh, little thing he can type mm -hmm. words in it speaks and he's yeah. out there directing some I haven't heard from him in a number of years but he still remained very active and, and again I, I don't know anybody that has more of a wealth he's a walking encyclopedia of yeah. theater in his head and uh He's an amazing person. So yeah, I, I, after a year that I was here, that I, I took over and stayed in the position. What's your proudest moment here? What is? What do you think is your most? Um, well, we'll go with proudest moment at at Saint Jack at, at at this point. And if you can't just choose one, I've got time. Well, I, <laughs> I can choose one, and and he's going to think it's because he's sitting here, mm -hmm. but. There's a picture right up here, uh, and that's Ray Carr, and Ray Carr was my mentor and like a father to me, and uh, he took a kid that had no idea what he was going to do in his life, and, and I decided that I wanted to be Ray Carr when I grew up, and he was, uh, he was a, uh, a chair at a community college theater program, and you know, my family my mother got married when she was 15, dad was 17, sister was 16, my brother was 18, and then I come along and no one had ever, f one finished the high school, my, uh, my oldest brother, and no one's got went to college. And if it wasn't for this guy here, I mean, I, I cannot imagine what my future would have been. And he inspired me so much in my life that I decided that you know, the greatest gift is to inspire someone else uh, to go in and, and continue, not my legacy, but Ray's legacy. And uh, Jay came along, and, and Jay uh, was a student of a, uh, a young lady that uh, she and I were working on our master's together. And she called me up one day, and I think I was had like 105 fever, I was sick as a dog, and she brought this young Jay Thomas up here and uh, introduced me, and he came into the program, and uh, you know, it's it's not often that that you have those individuals that have really made a name for themselves and continue to make a name for themselves, and, and, and hopefully somewhere along the way you played a role in, in shaping who they are. Um, because when it's all said and done and, and you're, you're dead and buried, you know, what do you have? Mm -hmm. um, this theater program will go on long time after me and somebody else will come in with a different vision and so forth. And so I've carried on Terry's traditions. Terry carried on uh, Jerry Powell's and I'm the third one here. Um, but it's legacy to me and if Jay wasn't here, I'd give you a completely different answer. But <laughs> of I was course. Hoping that he would just pay me something later on and buy my yeah, lunch. Yeah, who's buying lunch? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what's uh, what about a show? What's uh, and and I got to see your Santa's Christmas Magic, the musical. Sorry. Now, are you say saying thing, sorry get, because you uh, saw the show? No, no, no. no I'm sorry that you sorry saw the Grinch? I, right. It was very clear in that show that copyright was important. Uh, <laughs> so I want to make sure that I'm saying Santa's yeah. Christmas Magic, the musical. Yes. Because um, I don't want to be sued. But uh, so, but, and, and you wrote that, correct? Or 
R.J. Snivai wrote it. Okay. I, I don't claim anything to it. There are uh, definitely some uh, elements that are from your brain, though, I assume. I mean, updates, at least. Because uh, you have current event jokes in there. And well, one of these days, you're going to look at R.J. Snivai, and you're going to realize that spells something backwards. Mm-hmm. But um, I got you. Okay, um, I see what you're doing here. But... Uh, uh, <laughs> It was actually you our know, shirt this year. Who is it? Was, who is RJ Semi? That's that's the constant joke because yeah. I'm only the one in contact in contact with RJ. Right. Yeah. Um, and he lives off of way way off somewhere else, but uh, we're in constant uh, communication. <laughs> but you know, for me, I, I think the the production that I was most proud of is um, uh, a musical that we did of um, uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor mm-hmm. Dreamcoat, and uh, the sets, costumes. It, it was one of those positive perfect storms that all came together you know we were going to do his show and i'm like i'm not sure if i'm going to have a joseph or not and there was this random guy that showed up that happened to be i think maybe a youth minister or something at at, uh, one of the local uh, churches here and he shows up and i look at him and the guy looks just like donny osmond to me and Mm. and i leaned over to the music director and i said please say a silent prayer that this guy can sing because if he doesn't, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we've selected a show. We don't even know if we can cast it or not. This guy opens his mouth, and he has got the most beautiful voice you've ever heard. And come to find out, he won, like, uh, Spain's Got Talent or something like that yeah. with, with singing. He was an international recording uh, artist, and he just landed on our doorstep. And uh, the narrator was someone from, um, from Pearland area that teaches voice for a living. And it just kind of all came together, and it was just a, a beautiful, magical moment. And we were in the process of um, redesigning the building and going through renovations. And so the next year came around, we still had those sets. And so I thought, well, let's just, that show was so successful last year, let's do it again this year. We pretty much had the same cast, except for the guy that played Joseph. Mm-hmm. And not that the other guy did something wrong, but he just didn't have the charisma that the guy did with the cast and and it was a complete different production mm-hmm. although it was basically the same people yeah. but that one single production in that one single uh, moment in time um, I have it on DVD and I watch it over and over and over again and it's just uh, do you know where he is now uh, we're friends on Facebook. Uh, I don't think he's in the area anymore. I, I think he's still in. Uh, I think he's still in, in the church service somehow. Okay. I'm not quite sure what what his he's name doing. is. Enrique Iglesias. You might no, <laughs> I think it's his cousin. <laughs> right, right. What is right and what is wrong with education today? What is opinion, right and what is wrong? Um, I can tell you the, the wrong part of it is, is easy to me, and that is uh, the cost of education. Um, you know, years ago, funding was supported primarily by the federal government. And any time they, they're to cut a budget, the easiest thing to cut, they're not going to cut welfare, they're not going to cut military, the easiest thing to cut is education. And so there is a, a huge trend in the 70s and 80s of, well, this really should be a state thing. It's not a federal thing. So they start cutting the funding and started having lower and lower funding, which put more on the state level. And then the state started taking over the majority of it. And then the state started saying, where do we cut funds? And so they started 
cutting the funding, which means then now it's only in two different areas. It's either in uh, taxes or it's in tuition. And you can only tax so much. And so right now everyone talks about how the, uh, the cost of education has skyrocketed. And it really hasn't. It's, it's all a question of, of where's the funding coming from. And right now, it's becoming more and more on the students. And so what happens, because now that they're carrying the, the brunt of that and will carry more of it, now they're opting to go and get loans. And so when they graduate, they may or may not get the, the job. And, and if they do get a job, Chances are they're not paying the hundred thousand dollars that they've gotten loans, and it's it, it's sad because right now what it used to be, you could grad you could drop out of high school and get a, a really nice paying job, and then it got to the point where you had to have a high school degree. Nowadays it's to the point where you can't even go work in the factories here without uh, an associate's degree. So an associate's degree now is what a high school degree used to be, and high school degrees were free. And so as we talk about that getting a college, a two-year college degree should be free, well, first of all, it's coming from someone who works in a community college, so you're saying you're biased, but really it isn't. It, it should be that that's the same as what the high school used to be, and very, and in our lifetime, because it's happening now, the two-year degrees are going away, and you're going to have to have a four-year degree. For example, my wife who works at uh, the Women's Hospital, they're no longer hiring two-year degree nurses. So you have to get a four-year degree. And so they're slowly phasing that out, which means now they're going to force people to get four-year degrees, which means even more debt. And they get out uh, of college and they just can't get past that. So to me, that's a, a big problem um, that no one seems to know what the solution is without going into uh, a socialistic uh, yeah. um, um, system. But um, um, the positives, um, is that the one that everyone has difficulty yeah. with? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, well, easy, it's, it's easy to, because we all have our own opinions on what is wrong, um, and I think you hit the nail on the head with coming from especially an advanced degree uh, world, because you're the first person that I've talked to that is on this level, that's out of the high school you know, realm, the public school realm. Um, but then the, yeah, the, the, what is good with education, that is not a superficial answer like, well, because kids are great, you know, um, which sure they are, but that's not necessarily what's right with education. It's well, the, the easy answer for me, I mean, based on, on my, my history, is that, uh, again, when I, when I started, education wasn't essential. And therefore, I had very little support from my family. And my brothers and sisters thought that I was just going to college because I was a goofball, goofball and, and didn't want to take life seriously. And... To, to not only go to college, but to go and get the highest degree that you can get. With, again, not only is he playing around in college, he continued, when are you going to get done with college? Yeah. It was a constant uh, question. And I'm like, well, when I get the degree that I want to get. And what it has proven to do is, is it's allowed me, I, I hope 
like that my children do better than I do. It's a parent's dream that they will do better than you. And, and not that I've done better than my parents, but I can tell you financially, I'm in, in a better situation than any of my family. Mm-hmm. And it's because of education. Because if I hadn't had that education, I would have not broken the chain and I would have still been in Paris, Texas, working at the factory and, and barely trying to make uh, ends meet. And so education today is one of the few ways out if you want to break the chain uh, and if you want to, uh, to better yourself. It's not the only way for sure, but it is, it, it is definitely one of the positives to change your life. And we as educators, and especially being part of TETA, Texas Educational Theater Association, uh, and UIL for that matter, and KCACTF, and the reason why we're so active here is to give opportunity uh, and to give the students chances. And what more can you do to change lives? And I can't tell you how many conversations that I have with students sitting right where you are today and me telling them, it's a tough road, but break the chain. Mm-hmm. Do something different than your family's done and be take the courage to get out there and do something. And the way to do that is through education. I can't think of anything more positive than that because it's all about changing lives. What's something that you would tell, and you have students here that are gonna go into education, um, what's something you would tell them or tell a new teacher now that is that is not much older than probably your freshman students to say, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> you know, like everything will be just fine. Here's what you need to focus on to get through the rest of the year. And don't say summer. Um, <laughs> focus on your plans for the summer. Now, um, what's what's a piece of advice that you would give them to keep them kind of like, oh yeah, I, I can do that or stay motivated pretty much? You know, my, my wife, when we first got married, she, she almost had a perfect score in her SAT. I mean, she is one of the most sharpest uh, ladies that, that I've ever met. And she she kept failing out of college when we got married. And, you know, I, I, am, I was a financial aid counselor at Texas Tech. I was an admissions counselor at uh, U of H. I was uh, a college recruiter for a Head, uh, for a head Start uh, um, group. And I finally sat her down one day and I'm like, what are you doing? Why, we can't afford for you to continue to, to go to college. And, and she's like, uh, I have to go to college. And I'm like, who told you that? Well, my husband is a PhD. My uh, mother has her master's and my dad works at a community college. I have to go. And I'm like, I'm here to tell you that you don't have to until it's a priority. And so she, I said, you can go out and retail and make a lot more money than I'm making. And she did. And she was like one of the top five managers of Gap in the United States. And that was fine until we had children. And then she was tired of putting in 80 hours of work uh, as a manager. And so she said, I'm so tired of this. And I'm like, look, we have savings. Go back to college. Reinvent yourself. And we'll live off the savings until you get out. She had to make a big big choice and she has two loves and that was teaching theater and nursing and she said I I can't decide on either and I'm like well why do you want to teach because we already have one teacher of theater in in the family why do you want to teach theater and she started talking about all these wonderful memories and I said well okay well, well two things first of all that's your memory of high school and it's not necessarily real that's what you remember years ago 
Number two, the classroom is no longer what you believe that it was back then in the, uh, the mid-80s in Paris, Texas. Uh, the students are different. There are, it's just a completely different learning environment. And so what I told her is that you, you have to, to have a real, a real expectation of what it's going to be like. Otherwise, you're going to get in there, and the teachers that, that don't make it is because when they're getting their degree, they have it in their mind that it's going to be a certain way, and then they get in there, and reality hits, and it's just not what they thought it was, and therefore, it becomes very emotionally draining because it's just not living up to that expectation. Uh, we had a young lady here from Texas Tech who was working at a bank, and she goes, I just want to teach. I just want to teach. And I'm like, well, great come here, I'll get you some classes. And so she, she does. Uh, she lasted two semesters and she said, I'm going to go into banking. Uh, she had some students here, college students, that treated her poorly. And we did everything we could to support her, but it just wasn't what she thought it was going to be. And there was nothing I could say or do to help her. She just, she got out. And it was sad because she was, she was really good at, at what she does. And I hope that one day she reconsiders. So I, you know, I, I would say expectation uh, would be one of them. The, the other thing is uh, I used to teach a workshop at uh, TETA Theater Fest, and that was how to succeed, how to be successful in UIL one-act play. And boy, it was very well attended uh, because everybody wanted to be successful, but the, the title was a lie in that you think I'm going to teach you the secrets of making it to state and winning, and I'm not. What I'm going to do is try to change your mind of what makes you successful in one-act play. Even if you don't advance, what has made you successful? And it's that realistic expectation. And to keep your mind focused on on the positives and, and, and make it more goal-oriented, and for new teachers, I, I would have to say that that's the same. And that is sometimes if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you have to force you, make your own light uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. What is it you're trying to do and, and what are the positives of what you've done? If your goal in life is to teach children and to help them be better individuals, then although you're exhausted at the end of the year, look at the magical, wonderful things that you've done. You've changed lives. And, and at least that's a very positive thing that when you, your head hits the bed and you are exhausted and how can I get up the next day because there's that next kid that, that's depending on you. Um, but sometimes they don't look at it that way. And... I have found those that have survived in teaching for years love teaching, and, and they always have, and, and the teachers that may not be as successful are the ones that said, well, I'm going to go ahead and get teacher certification as a fallback position in case I don't do what I really want to do with my life, and I'm like, well, that's a, that's a very negative starting out, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, their heart, and we have college professors the same way it's a paycheck and yeah. a lot of people here is like you guys are up here all the time working uh, and they don't pay you for that and it's like well it's, it's because it's not about the paycheck tips of the trade for being an effective contest manager 
So maybe three of your top tips. You know, I, I, I think for me, I've been a very, very strong advocate of improving contest managers because over the years, everyone that I, I ask, if you could list one thing that is the weakest part of one act play contest, what is it? And, and almost universally, contest management. And it's because there was no rhyme or reason why they selected who they selected to, to be the official for the state of Texas over that contest. And oftentimes people were like, um, superintendents, oh, you're going to be a contest manager of the show. And, and they get in there and they've never read the handbook. They don't know the rules. And superintendents had difficulty understanding where I was coming from until I kind of put it into their terms and said, well, would you walk up to someone on the side of the street and say, hey, we need you to, uh, to come and be the official of this football game? Or basketball game and they said well that's ridiculous I said but that's what you're doing yeah. you're, you're asking someone to come in and and officiate when they don't even know the rules so having said that we have really really come a long way in 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 the recent years with uh, with certification and it's about to to change yet again and, and get even more serious uh, we try to standardize their pay, and we, we ask that all contest managers not accept anything less than $500 a day because the adjudicators are getting paid more than that, and we're carrying the weight of the responsibility and the, and the, the workload itself. So for contest managers, I, I would say number one uh, foremost of anything is to be organized. Uh, you've got to plan ahead, plan out their contingencies of, of anything that might go wrong, make sure that you've got your rooms, got your awards, uh, everything planned ahead. And there are individuals out there uh, that I call master contest managers like Jay and, and a handful of others that contact them. They have all kinds of forms to give you to help you organize. And that's one thing that you won't find in the handbook are these forms to help you organize the, uh, the contest. And so get those, be organized. Uh, second is is to be very familiar with what a one-act play contest is. And that's not to say, Blake, that they have to memorize every single rule. There are times when I am a contest manager at state that uh, I miss certain things and Luis will walk up to me and say, did you see that? Oh man, completely missed that. And vice versa. Hey Luis, did you see this? No, I missed that. There isn't any one person that knows all these rules inside and out. So contest management training should be, this is where you go and this is the section of the handbook to look for that. So don't memorize the rules, but be familiar enough with it to know um, what the contest is about, uh, the purpose of the contest, uh, and then know where to look. And the third one I would say is to keep in mind that uh, this contest is for students, and I know some of them are seniors and, and can enlist in the Army and, and vote and all of that, but they're still kids. Yeah. Emotionally, they're, they're still children, and I know that there are some contest managers out there who are very, very gruff, and if children show emotion, uh, they start yelling at them and things like that, and these kids are going to be kids. They They will reflect oftentimes the the directors of the show and their emotional um, uh, makeup. 
but uh, but once you realize that this is is for children, it's for the kids, it's for their betterment, it kind of makes you a kinder, gentler contest manager, and you still have to enforce the rules. What's your favorite Campbell soup? In that I don't eat much Campbell soup. <laughs> Neither do um, I, but that's okay. Uh, I'm going to answer that by telling you my least favorite, which is tomato. Okay. Uh, I can't stand tomatoes, but uh, I I love me some chicken noodle soup. Some just classic. Classic chicken noodle, only because I, I haven't tasted anything else. I, I am such a, my wife says I'm very finicky, picky, and I'm like, I am. Uh, I could probably live at McDonald's, um, as you see my <laughs> McDonald's tea every day I get my McDonald's Come on, tea. tell them, the people at the drive-thru know you. I know Terry very well. <laughs> I mean, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. I, I go through there, hey, Doc, how are you? I'm doing great. Oh, look, you're all dressed up today. And then, what is vehicle of, is this? Is and it one of those things that they see your car pulling in and they're oh, yeah. getting your order ready? Kind of yeah. 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 As soon as she looks at the order, her hand is always sticking. This is Terry. And her hand's always sticking out like this. <laughs> waiting for that next person and as, as I start to pull up she's waving at me because right. she know not I'd like to think it's because they have a, a camera somewhere right. but I'm sure she sees that order so, yeah, which order, is a right. sausage biscuit with a sausage well done a small order of fries and a large unsweet tea aka the duck the duck, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm expecting to see it on the menu at some exactly. the mac doc yeah the, the mac, mac doc, doc. That's yes right. that's right you used to get an egg white you don't get that anymore uh never got an egg white I got a, uh, um, an egg but it used to be fifty cents, and now it's like a uh, dollar fifty. No. I refuse to pay for it. I'm too cheap for that. That's right. Okay. Curtain call. Mandy, I want to know how you feel your clinics went this year, and uh, maybe some feedback on how your clinics have gone over the past few years. Tell me something that you wish you could take away more of, that your students wish they could take away more of, and tell me something that you find to be very useful and that your students find to be very useful, and go. Okay, so I, I really feel that one thing is, one thing for me that's super exciting in a clinic is when I find... I don't know, justification maybe of, of the different choices that I'm making and just how brilliant I become to my students when a clinician gives them confirmation of something that I've been asking my actors to do for weeks. Cause all of a sudden when another director says it, it's like, yes, they're genius. Um, and that's helpful for me if it works, obviously if it doesn't work, if, if there's something that's not, um, working in my show, I want to know that and I want the clinician to be honest. Um, and then that way I can work it later on. But having them confirm something from me for me in front of my students is obviously super helpful because then it, it ends up being something that I'm able to to use long term. One of my biggest cliche notes that I give my students after a clinic is, uh, see, I told you, why are you <laughs> now doing what I've asked you to be doing for four weeks? Right. But then some stranger watches the show, tells you the same exact note, almost verbatim. Right. And now you're going to react like, oh, yeah, you're you're right. We should be <laughs> doing that. Oh, my gosh. I wish somebody had told me that the last four weeks of rehearsal. 
right. and you just want to strangle your students, but you can't exactly. because they're going to video it and put it on Snapchat. I've gotten to the point now that even in the clinic, I'll just look over at them and make a face. Um, so, that, so that they have that memory like embedded in their brain when we get on the bus. Like, you're like I told you that this didn't need to happen. Um, and try not to take it personally at the same time because I think last year um, as a second year director but first year by myself having the opportunity to take the kids to clinic and I would almost take that a little personally like why are they not trusting me enough to to you know to take that note from me and then someone else says that it makes sense but I mean I think I do the same thing for myself I've, and I've learned that this year that I've, I'm doing that a lot to myself I'm second guessing my choices and then it's clear in the in the performance than I am and then a judge clarifies it for me and I'm like yeah I didn't do that I just wasn't doing it so yeah I mean the kids are the kids are looking for just as much clarification and confidence in their performance and it helps that that they see someone else watch their show because they think I'm always going to tell them, I don't know, either what they want to hear or, or complete opposite, right? Like that's not at all what I'm asking you to do. Let's try something different. And I think they just need to hear it from somebody else. But, so that's, that's super helpful. But, um, and sometimes I question like the setup for clinics overall. Um, like I think it does give a, a clear, I don't know, prep run for our competitions. But at the same time, if if the endpoint is competition itself, and they don't really have a background of the process prior to that moment, and then see where the endpoint should be, depending on where your clinic lies, I think it could really mess with your head on on how much can you feasibly get accomplished at a certain time frame and so I don't know if there's a better way to set up a clinic or or have a conversation with a clinician beforehand um, to really help guide the process in a way that's going to be most beneficial before a clinician starts to tell their opinion in front of your students um, yeah so um uh, one of my, speaking of scheduling clinics or the way that they're kind of designed, one of my largest, biggest beefs with that is the back to back to back to back. You're trying to fit in eight schools a day. And yes, it is supposed to be mimicking, I guess, the competition at a zone or a district or something like that. But you're you're not paying to be at a district. You're not paying to be at the competition necessarily. I mean, yes, there are fees. I know once you get higher up, I, I get that. Uh, but you're what you're paying for is like the entire host in the competition, whereas the clinic, you're paying practically straight to the adjudicator. Yes, maybe the host school grabs fifty bucks from it or something like that. And I know at the yeah before I get hundreds of emails from all of my fans, um, I know that at blake.minor at gmail.com, I know that the, uh, the, the money, I know that money goes towards the clinician and sure. the space. I know that money goes towards the adjudicator and the host school. I get that. Uh, right. and, and that's if the district isn't paying for it. So my district pays for the clinician or not the clinicians, the adjudicators 
And then any money that I charge for a ticket is practically a fundraiser. Um, So all that being said, my problem with the clinics, going back to that, because I digress, my problem with that is that the, like this year, we had a clinician that went from a show that's potentially 40 minutes, you know, maybe 45, Mm -hmm. maybe 50 because of just cutting and you're not there yet. And then goes straight into notes without processing. And while those notes are happening, while that hour long note taking session is happening, the next school is coming in and doing their performance for another clinician. This is just at, at the school I was at. And then they give notes, but then while they're giving notes, another show is happening. So they are, that stage every hour has another show, and the clinician doesn't have any time to process what they just saw. They don't have time to sort of clear their mind of what they just saw. So by the time, as we were the last school, by the time we roll around and come in, the clinician is just drained because they're a human and so we're not getting out of it what that 8 a.m school is uh getting because they were fresh and the clinician is awake they've had their coffee they're ready to go they're excited about it but now here we are at 8 p.m and the clinician's exhausted doesn't want to see any more theater no matter how passionate you are it's just a it's kind of just too much you know if it is going to be set up to mimic what you're dealing with on contest day, then when you do have that, you know, eighth school, seventh school slot, I mean, that's really what you're setting yourself up for. But like you said, for a clinic, that's not the point, right? I mean, that's not the point for the school that's paying to go. The the point is for them to get a legitimate um, talk back session before they go into a district competition, no matter what, no matter where you're lying in the, in the lineup for, but your slot. But you're not even like the, the, I would make the argument that why are you mimicking a contest? You like today you went to a clinic. But you're still yeah. a week away from your first contest. So like mm-hmm. in our world when you're doing a musical or a a straight play or something like that, you mimic that straight play or that musical at final dress. Maybe you do it once or one or two more times before that. But Sure. You don't have, like, we did a clinic three weeks out. Why are we trying to mimic? And just today, at a rehearsal. And I don't necessarily think that the schools that are going are trying to mimic as much as. I think some of them do, man. The the people that were before us, they had, they had our thing. You know what I mean? Like. Well, and we do the same thing. But I also don't think that. At your first clinic, you did the same, you did everything. Everything that you're going to have. Everything we had, we brought. Everything that was ready, we brought. And this is and this is my mentality for it, because no one else did, right? And even last Friday, which was our second clinic, second clinic, was Savage. Hey, Stewart's going to be so excited to hear his name in this. Oh, he so is. He's one of yeah. three fans. There's you. He is one of three. He is one of three fans, and he watches it multiple times so that there's more hits on it. He's that kind of fan. <laughs> um, Thanks, Stewart. Yeah, we love you. Um, no, Stuart. I can't even remember what I was talking about. That's okay. Oh, he he, okay, does, he just wants like, to hear his name multiple times. He, he just said that we had the most everything there. Now, that doesn't mean that we had the most everything 
done, but I also think that this year, this particular show is such a visual and, and like costume specific. It's creating a very conceptual world that if I don't bring that, then I'm, I'm like not even setting myself up for success. You know what I mean? So we bring as much as we can, but you know, I don't know if last year's show I needed to necessarily do that. And I don't think I did last year. Um, yeah, but are you, we're not using it. It are, makes sense for me. Are you hoping, see, cause like when we go to clinic, uh, like my weakness is, well, I'm not a director, I'm a technical director, I'm a designer. So if I'm going to go to a clinic, I don't want somebody, I don't want Paul Davis to be my clinician, although he is far and away much more brilliant than I am. And that's not me sucking up. That's just the truth as far as a designer is concerned. And he could totally give me some feedback that I would never even think of. That is not my weakness. My weakness is directing and seeing windows and making kids come in from angles and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So I want a clinician that's going to give me that. So that's why maybe you and I differ a little bit in that I'm going to give them bare bones because I want them to see, uh, you know, we'll have the set, but we may not have the dressing. We may not, and we're not going to have lights for sure. We'll have sound. And and I think, yes. So for you, I'm going to talk about you for you as a TD feeling confident, maybe in your with design aspects and what you have going on, that would make sense where you're like, I don't need to bring that because I know that that's working or I feel confident that by the time we go up, it's going to be working. But for myself, I have, um, we're a new team last year. We were a new team. I have a different TD from last year. Um, I'm only a three year director for high school. And so because of that, I don't, I, I, I don't feel confident yet that only taking half my show or, you know, half the aspects of my show are going to be beneficial to me because I don't trust the process yet. You know what I mean? Um, and I also pick my clinic, the, the clinics based on who I think is going to give me what I need at the time in which I have them. So, um, you know, we had, Rick Garcia today and that made sense to me because I'm a week away and any of the character development type, you know, comments that he's going to make or relationships and any of the other stuff that um, he's helped us with before and um, going to my astro camp and all of that. I know that right now a week out, I still have time to attack all of that. We have Luis on Monday and for me, that was helpful because I'm like, he's, he's going to understand that in four days, I'm only going to be able to get so much done. He has all the knowledge of UIL. That's when I'm going to have all my tech elements in place. So by then, that'll be really helpful for him to see the show and say, okay, in four days, this is what you need to cut or fix or whatever. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I think earlier on, I think last year I had, I didn't know enough directors and enough of what they did. So I was just literally signing up for whoever someone else said, Oh, you should go see this person. So I just signed up for it. So I didn't know. I had no idea who these people are. And, and the year, um, I just have a little bit better grip on who does what or what, what's their specialty. So I was able to pick things better. 
So thanks again to Mandy Tapia for coming on. It was kind of an abrupt end there, but we recorded actually quite a bit of stuff that'll that'll air later on this month. It just wasn't very topical for right now. It's more of the more jovial, fun side of things, so that'll come out later. Thanks again also to Dr. Jerry Ivins. Uh, I appreciate sitting down with him and talking with him. I know that we will talk again. The man is a wealth of knowledge, and I, again, truly appreciate him. And then, yeah, thanks, Jay Thomas. Again, you know, whatever. Last segment of the uh, podcast this week is the student section. This is going to be a question that that was asked uh, that was, what team camaraderie type of activities do you guys do as a cast that kind of bring you all together? The answers are kind of fun. It's hearing the joy in these kids' voices is always kind of fun. This will end this week's podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And stay tuned for what these kids have to say. Have a great week, guys. There's this game we play, and it's called Bunny Bunny. Mm-hmm. Ah! And we need a, yes. And it's like such a simple, well, not a curse. It's such a simple game, like one now, but really it just like upperclassmen were already comfortable with each other. So to have like some sophomores and a few freshmen step in, it was like really hard for them to let loose like we were. I mean, you know, we want to let loose and show them it's okay, but also some of us are a little too good at letting loose and intimidate them. I'm not going to say names. <laughs> but it was just a good way to get everybody involved and like keep rhythm together and just, you know, have a good time. And it's okay if you mess up, like no one gets out in, in our game. But yeah, it was fun. Um, one of the favorite things that we do uh, some of them probably hate it, but it's um, Raza Boxes. Oh. Um, it, shows, um, it shows that um, we're not just always happy all the time. It lets other people see that we also feel emotions other than happiness, whether it's sadness or, I don't know. Like It brings down a wall that if you're not comfortable with expressing yourself to other people, it helps you break down that wall and you become closer as a family because when you cry in front of somebody, it's like, that's it, you know me. There's like all these boxes that have different emotion, like love, peace, happiness, sadness, anger, disgust, disgust, disgust. rage, and basically you enter each box oh, and, and you, peace and peace is in the middle, but you never really fully have peace as a person. Like you may pass through it, but you can never really stop at peace. So it's like in each box you write something like, something that disgusts you, and then in the sadness <laughs> box you write something that makes you sad. And it's like everything is true. And, I don't know. You always cry in the end, but you always ugly Ugly cry. cry. (laughs) But it's a it's a really fun activity. Well, not fun, but it's it's a good activity. (laughs) It's not fun. Bring like closer as a cast with people that you don't normally talk to. For my freshman year one act, we did love letters, and I feel it's only for one act season that we do love letters to each other right before district contest or right before our first contest. We'll write a love letter to every single person in the cast. And like right before we go on stage, we'll like have quiet time and we'll open them, open them up and read them. And that's just my favorite thing in the whole world, just to tell like everyone like spreading love. I just feel like traditions like that is like great. And like our like opening show tradition with where we do the past the energy. Mm-hmm. I feel like just stuff like that just like brings us all, makes us one whole family. Every second show, we always go to Chewy's on Friday, and so. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> we all go and Chewies and we all eat together and um, it's always so much fun. We tear that place up. <laughs> <laughs> we we the don't get kicked out. Last time we almost got kicked out. We almost did. <laughs> Someone like start. What, what happened? I don't know. I was just being loud. Yeah. Chewies is like. Chewies is like. It's tradition. You go to we, we go to Chewies once a year for um for UIL. Great time for us to like just let all of our frustrations about UIL loose. And it feels so good to go to Chewies and just the hurricane arrives on shore and it's a great time and we always almost leave in handcuffs. But it's great. We love Chewies. Love Chewies. 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 Chewies.